Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. If you're a guest here or watching online for the first time, my name is Paul Graham, and I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Lakeside. And uh, we are into the final two sermons on our summer series on doctrine. And uh, this is today, we're talking about the last thing. Seems apropos, seems right that we finish on the last things, and next week on heaven. And uh, so we have uh, been basically going through uh, core doctrines of Scripture and looking at a variety of Scriptures to say, what does the Bible teach us about this? And what do we need to know about this in order to live our Christian lives rightly and to think rightly about God and about His Word and about the world and about others? And uh, if you want some, as I normally do, I have some additional information on these topics because we can't do the amount of doctrine we would like to in 40 minutes. Uh, So the extra material on the last days, if you have your concise theology book, which almost every family here should have now, and if you don't have one, come see me, Uh, Second Coming, page 250, and Judgment Seat, page 258. A prior sermon, if you just go back to last March, like not past March, but two Marches ago, uh, Matthew message number 45, be ready, uh, which is on Matthew 24, where Jesus talks about this. And then further reading, uh, William Hendrickson, More Than Conquerors, an Interpretation of the Book of Revelation. Now, if you're going to go there, uh, just understand that it's not light, and it will open up a rabbit hole in which you will have to read seven other books, okay? So, just saying, I know there are people that have an interest in this. There's a place to start. Uh, Let me just pray before we begin. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this series uh, that you've put on our hearts to go through your your doctrine, to go through your truths, to go through who you are, what you've written to us, how we should know it, and how we act out of it. And so, Lord, I pray that today as well uh, would be applicable, it would be relevant, it would be um, transformative in how we view our faith, how we view you, and how we act towards the world and towards each other. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, As as I say, as we get near the end of this series, uh, we're finishing up on two messages that cover uh, what is commonly called eschatology. Um, Throughout our series, we've looked at several ologies. Uh, Theology is the study of God. Ecclesiology, the study of the church. Soteriology, the study of salvation. All these great words now you have for your friends at work. Um, And now we have eschatology. So ecclesiology, soteriology, eschatology. Uh, And it gets its name from the Greek eschatos, or the extreme, or the last, or the very end. And so eschatology is the study of last things. And like all of our topics have been, it's a big topic, um, starting mostly, if if you're looking at the Bible, if you're looking mainly starting in the uh, era of exile and the prophets after Israel's exile, the Bible talks quite a bit about the last days, or you might hear it called the great day of the Lord, a fair bit. And Jesus, not just the prophets, but Jesus talks more than a little bit about the last days and the day and his day. And the apostles and the disciples write to the early church about these days and the day as well. In fact, there is, as I'm sure you know, most of a whole book about it right at the end of the New Testament. Literally, the last word is on the last days. And so, it being a big topic and it being approachable in so many different ways, I want to start out this morning by preparing some of you to possibly be disappointed this morning. 
because I am not going to endorse your or my or anyone's favorite interpretation of signs, timelines, theories of the Antichrist, trumpets, bowls, scrolls, woes, thunders, beasts, Babylon, the rapture, or the millennium. There may be a sermon series on that someday, but it is not today. Okay, so just be prepared. I know many of you were excited. But rather this morning, I want to approach the doctrine of eschatology, the studies of the last days, in a way that I think is more foundational. If that's eschatology 501, we're going to do eschatology 101. Just by asking some very basic questions of the whole Bible on this topic. Questions like, why does God give us the information that he does about the last days and the day of the Lord? Why include it at all? God reveals information to us, starting with the prophets. So we need to ask ourselves, why does God even tell us these things? He didn't have to, but he did. What purpose does God expect this information in the Bible to accomplish? We can also ask, to what purpose do the biblical writers put this information to use as they write? How do the prophets use it? How do the apostles use it? How does Jesus use it as he's literally writing scripture as he speaks? What warnings and encouragements do they give about eschatological issues? What do they tell us to put our energy into, and what do they tell us not to waste our energy on in regard to the last days? And then finally, how should we think about and interpret this doctrine rightly so that we steward our time and actions well and our knowledge of the coming day accomplishes the intended purpose in our personal lives? Those are very doctrinal questions. Those are the questions that doctrine asks. Why did God tell us this? How do the writers use it? How are we supposed to apply it? And I think if we consider these questions and not whether Rome or China or Russia or America is Babylon or what Middle Eastern European or Asian states make up the ten toes of the statue of Daniel's vision, I think if we think about these things, we won't be disappointed at all, but we will be both encouraged and exhorted in our Christian life and in our faithfulness and in our mission. Eschatology is a doctrine, I'll start off by saying, in which there is much agreement on the matters of first importance, and there's some very different views on matters of secondary importance. And so as we approach this topic, I'm going to be honest, and I'm going to state very plainly that in this matter, as a pastor, I am recommending that all believers practice humble orthodoxy with respect to ecclesiology. I say orthodox because we will hold fast to what the Bible teaches us generally and clearly about the victorious conclusion of God's redemptive plan for history and humanity. And I say humble because we will not presume to know more than what the Bible reveals, nor will we presume to know more than 2,000 years of faithful Christian interpretation has been unable to prove for certain. And so we will have humble orthodoxy as we approach this topic, and I think that is safe. In fact, I think humble orthodoxy is exactly why the writings about the last days are written the way that they are. So now, there has to be a way to organize this, and I struggled a bit this week of how to organize how we're going to talk about the last days. And as always, when I, you know, exhausted all of my creativity and cleverness, I just looked at the Bible, and God said, why don't you just use 2 Peter 3, 1 to 13? That's why I wrote it. And so, (laughs) if you open your Bibles to 2 Peter 3, 1 to 13, uh, that's the text that will be the way we organize our talk this morning. 
You can tap there on the phones. If you don't have a Bible, there may be a Bible in the seat pockets in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at all, like you don't own a Bible, don't have one at home, you can take that Bible with you today, and that's our gift to you. You can walk out the door and no alarms were sound or anything. Uh, That is your Bible now. Now, I could have chosen 1 Thessalonians 5, Joel chapter 2, a number of chapters in Daniel or Ezekiel, many sections of Revelation, Isaiah 2 or Isaiah 13, Matthew 24, most of Amos and Zephaniah. Suffice it to say, there's a lot of material on the last days in Scripture. But I feel that Peter's second letter gives us a great structure, a good summary of what God has told us about the eschaton, about the last days and how the biblical writers were inspired to use what God revealed to them in order to encourage and exhort believers, and non-believers for that matter. And this text points us towards its application. And so 2 Peter 3, 1 to 13 is the framework we're going to hang those inquiries on. Now, it's a long text that I've chosen, and I'm not going to read it all at once, but we're going to take this section of text in five parts. The first part we will see is that we are to remember and know. Peter writes, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. Now, there's a couple of basic things that we can take away about the last days from Peter's introduction to the topic. First of all, that we are to remember and to think about and be aware and to know about the last day, that it is good to think about the last day. God put information about the day of the Lord and the judgment and the last days in the Bible on purpose, Peter says, for us to remember. And so that is expected of Christians, that we will live our lives in light of and in consideration of the last days. We're not just to throw this topic away, and some Christians do. Some Christians get fed up with the arguments about exactly what it's going to look like or when it's going to come or if this is that or that is the other thing, and some Christians basically say it's either too far away, not going to happen in my lifetime, too complicated to figure out, it's just not relevant, it's not important to how we live my, I live my life as a Christian, and so I'm just going to forget about it. Well, the first thing we see here is Peter says you can't do that. Peter says, I'm deliberately reminding you that you would remember just how much God has taught us about the predictions of the prophets and the last days. And Jesus, and then the apostles, they keep, God keeps telling us about the last days, and so it's good to think about the last days, and we should live our life as Christians in light of our understanding of them. And so as you're reading this text, Peter wants you to imagine... And you can imagine with me as we go through this today that there are kind of invisible arrows pointing out from what he is writing, and those invisible arrows are pointing out to a whole bunch of other things. He says the prophets and the Lord and the apostles. There are things that are about the last days that you need to bring to mind as I'm teaching about this. We can look back to the other things that are written, and that's what Peter wants us to do. Well, here's a few examples. When Peter says you should remember the predictions of the prophets, we have some descriptions of the last days that Peter has in mind. 
Isaiah 2 is the first place, really, it's talked about. The lofty looks of a man shall be humbled, and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. You could look at Joel. Chapter 2, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Or Amos 5, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned on his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Or Malachi 4, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And so Peter says, as I remind you of these things, I want you to keep remembering all the things that the prophets said and Jesus and the apostles. God gave his prophets lots of instructions, lots of vision, lots of predictions regarding the day of the Lord. So as Christians, you should know them and remember what they are about. And as you think about what those things taught, you will find, Peter is, I think, saying here, that I'm teaching the same thing. To summarize an entire Old Testament seminary semester in one sentence, what the prophet said was, it's going to be a day of justice and judgment for the wicked and a day of redemption for the faithful. God wins, evil loses. There's your summary. So Peter says, remember all of that. You need to bring this to mind. This is not a topic you should ignore. And in contrast to wise disciples who remember what God has said about the last days and know what God intends by them, Peter tells us, secondly in this text, that scoffers are deliberately ignorant of the judgment. So he says, I want all you to remember because scoffers do not. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So basically, Peter says, all that stuff that the prophets talked about, it's coming. And these scoffers, don't be like them. Peter says, expect. Expect people. When you point out the coming judgment, there are going to be people that brush it off and say, ah, the sun sets and the sun rises and the tides come and the tides go and the seasons change. And those prophets that you are talking about, Peter, they were writing a thousand years ago. That's Peter's time, 3,000 years ago, our time. And even then, even in first century Israel, we have a history going back 4,000 years and nothing ever changes. He is not coming back been too long. None of the stuff they talk about ever happens. But Peter says, in answer to these scoffers, or to us, be aware of their motives. Why do they say that? Why do people put it off? He says, notice they deliberately overlook this fact. 
What fact do the scoffers intentionally avoid? They avoid the fact that God created the earth and that he destroyed it once before by water, and there's no reason he won't destroy it again. In fact, if they read the prophets, as we have, he intends to destroy the world by fire this time. And they would know, even more importantly than any physical destruction that's coming in the day of the Lord, there is a spiritual judgment coming, but they deliberately don't want to remember the reality of the second coming of Jesus. They don't want to consider the day of the Lord, deliberately, intentionally. Peter puts his finger on the key motivation for unbelief, because if there is no judgment, then I don't have to reconcile my values, my choices, my life to anyone. It is very handy and convenient for me to deliberately overlook the judgment, because then I judge for myself. And not that everyone wants to be a bad person or do evil things, but simply be whatever person they want to be on their own terms, without having to reconcile it with anybody, certainly not a righteous God of the universe. And so Peter says, scoffers are deliberately ignorant and expect the scoffers to scoff. In the last days before the last day, people are not going to want to wrestle with the implications of what God has made plainly known. God has made it clear in his prophets, through Jesus and the apostles, the last day is coming. But as scoffers deliberately overlook facts, Peter goes on to say to his friends, you, though, understand the purposes of God in this. He says in verse 8, but you do not overlook. Scoffers overlook deliberately, but you, you do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so Peter says, in these matters of the last days, in these matters of eschatology, when scoffers come or even other Christians come and say, it's a long way off, it's taking forever, it's never going to happen. He says, disciples, Christians, friends, we don't overlook facts. We know why it has been a long time. Why do so many centuries, why do so many thousands of years even pass without judgment coming? Peter says the answer lies in at least two places. There's two reasons Peter gives us. First of all, he says, God's concept of time and ours are just fundamentally different. God is eternal. What seems like a thousand years to us is like a day to him. Peter would say it's only been like a day since Joel and Amos wrote those prophecies. Like all these people that are saying, oh, those prophets that you're talking about, that was a thousand years ago. And Peter would be like, yeah, for God, that's a day. Like, you think God is being patient? He hasn't even waited a day yet. And as far as God is concerned, counting up the years to 2022, he's just barely waited for two days since Jesus was resurrected. It's been less than a week since the days of King David to God. And so first of all, as Christians, we understand God is eternal, and so time flows differently for him. And one of the reasons that it looks like a long time for us is because God just doesn't see time the way we do. But secondly... And perhaps even more importantly, Peter says the other thing is, is that God is patient like you don't even know. God is patient and he is merciful and his patience and his mercy, he is not in a hurry to wrap up human history while there are still generations that can be rescued. God's aim is repentance and redemption. And so all of history and all the judgment itself are aimed at that purpose. God is using the last days and the day of judgment to the purpose of accomplishing his redemption of people. He wants people to know the end is coming, but that they have time to be saved. And so he gives us, God gives us both time, Peter says, God gives us tons of time, like so much time, all this time in order to understand his patience on one hand 
And at the same time, God gives us a final end of things, a line drawn in the sand, a deliberate conclusion. And both of those things, the eons of time and the sudden final conclusion of one single aim, for us to repent, for us to confess. But how does that time work in relation to God's purpose towards both the lost and the saved? And Peter has an explanation from Scripture about how the time and the judgment works for the lost and the saved. The exact day of the Lord is deliberately obscure. He says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Now, both Peter and Paul use this phrase of coming like a thief in the night, and it's clearly lifted directly from the teaching of Jesus who spoke that way. And so here's another imaginary arrow. Remember those imaginary arrows that are pointing out. Peter wants us to remember these arrows that are pointing out to other teachings. And Peter would expect us to draw an arrow out from his writings to the writings of the gospel and to the writings of Paul. He would expect us to pull the teaching of Jesus into what he is reading here, or, sorry, writing here, because he's used this phrase as a signal. Just as the prophets spoke of the day of the Lord, they saw less clearly than Jesus, obviously, and they saw the day of the Lord less clearly than the apostles. And one of the most often repeated details we get from Jesus and emphasized by the apostles is the obscurity of the exact time of the last day. And my brain just works in ironies. I always look at the irony of things. And ironically, this is kind of like an anti-detail. It's a very precise and definite statement about obscurity. It's like Jesus said, let me give you some new detailed information about the last day. You definitely for certain will not know when it is. Thanks for the clarity. (laughs) Jesus says in Matthew 24, 42 to 44, he says, therefore, stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And he says in Mark 13, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, not even the Son, but only the Father. So Peter uses that thief-in-the-night imagery here to say that the day of destruction, when everything will burn, and the day of judgment, when all our works will be exposed, comes unexpectedly. It comes swiftly. It comes unpredictably. And Peter would also expect that one of our arrows would also go from here out to 1 Thessalonians 5, where Paul writes about the same thing. And we should pull that into Peter's teaching. And Paul says, "...for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night." While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. And then Paul goes on to give more helpful explanation of this. He says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. You see, Peter and Paul are just lifting that teaching of Jesus and bringing it to mind to the Christians to say, this is what we know about the day of the Lord. It's going to come suddenly. It's going to come like a thief. It's going to come unexpectedly. Paul confirms what Jesus taught. You won't know when this day comes. But 
unlike the people who are drunk and asleep, because they don't think there will be any thief at all. Remember, the scoffers are saying it's never going to come. And the people who are scoffing, Jesus says they're asleep. Paul says they're asleep. Peter says they're scoffers. He says, unlike them, you're not going to be asleep. You're going to be awake and prepared. The day, like a thief, still comes unexpectedly, but the point of what Jesus and Paul and Peter are writing is, is you are not going to be surprised because you are ready. You know that it's coming, and so you are not caught off guard. Both Paul and Peter arrive at the same conclusion of this knowledge of the day of the Lord and the coming judgment. You won't be surprised. Just as Jesus said, you will be ready. And we'll work outward again from our text in 2 Peter. Fifthly, then the conclusion, therefore always live prepared. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are awaiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, Peter and Paul, as they're teaching on this day of the Lord... God's revealed it. Jesus has explained it. The apostles are teaching Christians how to apply it. They basically say, since the day is coming like a thief, since the day is coming unexpectedly and unknown, is their teaching here, figure out then when it is? No. Jesus already said you will not figure out when it is. Not even he knows. Peter and Paul say, because the day of the Lord is coming in the future and it's like a thief and it's unexpected, ignore it. It doesn't matter. No, they don't teach that either. God told us for a reason, and we're supposed to remember and consider it. So if we're not supposed to pour our energy into figuring out the date, and we're not supposed to just ignore it and say, well, we all win in the end anyway, it doesn't change how I live my life, how do we use what God has told us about the last days? How is God intending us, and how have the apostles and the biblical writers applied this knowledge? Where should our energy be directed? What do Jesus and the apostles emphasize? Well, Peter says, the question is, what sort of person will you be? As you wait for this day that you know is arriving, how are you then going to live? If this is true about the last day, that it's all going to burn and the judgment is coming and it's going to come swiftly, then Peter says, live holy and godly lives. Be righteous people. Be prepared. Be ready for that day. Do not imagine that you can take a day off, so to speak. Be prepared for that day. And in fact, this is kind of interesting to think about, just as an aside, because I have an extra few minutes. Notice what he says here. He says, as Christians are living godless and righteous lives, and Hebrews and Paul are going to talk a little bit more about as you live, be make sure you're living out the mission of the church. We're going to get to that. He says here, such an interesting phrase, it made me pause, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. And I'm thinking, okay, wait. So all this time stuff is interesting with the last day of the Lord, right? So is Peter implying, first of all, that only God knows the day, not only that, but in fact, the day could come sooner or later depending on how we live out our lives and mission? In other words, God knows the day, but we can't figure out the date because actually there isn't a date. 
Because how we live as Christians right now can actually speed up or slow down the coming of the day of the Lord. Because Peter says we can hasten it. And there are other texts throughout Scripture about the mission of the church and about the time of the Gentiles coming in and the number of the Gentiles and the number of the Jews to be saved and the, and the word of the Lord being proclaimed in all of the earth. And when that happens, is dependent on us doing our mission. And so I just found that, again, my mind goes in weird places. And I just, again, found that kind of ironic as I watch all the YouTube videos and all the people with the whiteboards and they're trying to figure out, you know, on what day it's going to come. And I'm thinking... We don't even, that day could be moving all the time depending on how faithful we are to our mission. We don't know the day. We can't know the day. God has made it clear that you're not going to figure it out, but He's made another thing clear is that as we live lives of godliness and as we live lives on mission on the church, all we're going to do is bring it closer. So if you want the day of the Lord to come, then be faithful in your righteous living, be faithful in the mission of the church. Paul says it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, but since, you notice the since and the therefores there, right? Peter says, since, this is what, like, because of all this day of the Lord, since, this is how you apply it. Paul says it this way, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet, the hope of salvation, and therefore encourage everyone, encourage one another, and build one another up just as you have been doing. The writer of Hebrews draws the same conclusion about the last day. He says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And Jesus says it very simply in Matthew 24, therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour at which you don't expect. So in essence, what Jesus and Peter and Paul and the writers of Hebrews and others are stressing as they consider the topic of the last day of the Lord is what some people might call personal eschatology. They're basically saying this is your personal application when it comes to the day of the Lord. Your job as Christians is to be ready. Your job as Christians is to be involved in evangelism, to be encouraging each other, to be meeting together, to be involved in the mission of the church, all the more as the day of the Lord appears. But the other thing that personal eschatology means is that it applies to you and your neighbor in a very personal way, and this is what I mean by this. First of all, yes, that there is a general eschatology, a universal eschatology reality that Jesus is going to enter creation again, what we've been talking about, the day of the Lord. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those, who are pierced, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Jesus is coming. The second coming is imminent. The second coming is personal. The second coming is going to happen. That's the universal eschatology. But what I mean by this in terms of personal eschatology is that you must live as those you are in your last days, because the last day can come at any time, And more likely, your day will come at any time. You're going to meet Jesus. For most of us, regardless of the universal eschaton, we are all going to personally meet Jesus in the next 20 to 40 years, whether he comes for the world or not. And so will your neighbor. For most of us, in the next 20 to 50 years, your neighbor is going to meet Jesus. It doesn't matter whether he comes on the cloud. It doesn't matter whether he comes for the whole world or not. He's going to come, we're going to meet him, your neighbor's going to meet him. In fact, maybe in the next few days or weeks, maybe tomorrow for some. 
And any opportunity when that happens for kingdom work will be gone. There's one thing that we won't be doing in heaven, evangelism. So any chance to warn the scoffers, any chance to live righteous lives before a world that is dark and to be light and life will be gone when we meet Jesus. And I have little doubt that this is why Jesus said, I can tell you for certain that you don't know when it is. Nobody knows but the Father. Because for some, establishing the date or at least the generation of the last day has been a distraction for the 2,000 years since he literally said, you won't know what the date is. And yet for every generation, they have met Jesus in their lifetime. And so you have generation after generation thinking, this is the generation that Jesus is going to return. We figured it out. I saw Haley's Comet. You know, and so this is what it's going to be, or Genghis Khan, or the Pope in Rome, or whatever it is. They all thought the end was, Peter and Paul thought it was in their day. And every generation has thought, this is the day of universal eschatology. This is the day when, this is the generation when Jesus is going to come. All those generations have come and gone, and yet every one of those generations has met Jesus. So this is what I conclude on, this idea of personal eschatology. It is good that we think about the last days. God wants us to think about the last days. He wants us to know the judgment is coming. He wants us to know that he is incredibly patient, and it could still be a far way off because he wants so many more people to come into his family. But what we need to remember is that we have our own personal eschatology. We're going to meet Jesus in our lifetime one way or the other. And your neighbor and your coworker is going to meet Jesus in their lifetime one way or the other. And there is just this lifetime to do kingdom ministry and kingdom work. So the teaching of Jesus and the apostles steers clear of prediction and focuses on anticipation and preparation. They they stress that our energy should go into living every day in holiness and in obedience, stirring each other up to good works, meeting together, gathering as a church, staying on mission. Yes, warning the world of the judgment to come. God gave us these warnings on purpose, and they are terrible warnings. Who can stand against the Lord when he comes? Who can stop the consumption of the world in fire? No one. But the point of those warnings is not that we know that it's tomorrow or next month or that China's this or Russia's that or America's this. The point of the warnings is to emphasize the patience of God and the possibility of redemption so that we can be prepared Peter concludes, we are awaiting the new heavens and the new earth. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. Next week we're going to talk about, yeah, it all burns, but God's burning it to remake it all. And so we talk about the reward next week. So in the doctrine of eschatology, I come back to where I began with my pastoral exhortation. We hold humble orthodoxy, aware of both what the Father wants us to know and also what the Father has chosen deliberately not to reveal to us. We follow the teaching of Jesus and the apostles on this matter. Their emphasis is to be prepared and to use the knowledge of the last day and the uncertainty of its timing to intensify our desire to live rightly before God and warn our neighbors that the patience of God has a purpose. I think one of the ways that this works, now that teachers are back to school and kids are back in school, you'll remember this, I know you'll remember this, You have a substitute teacher. And while the substitute teacher is there, everybody's behaving pretty well, but for whatever reason, they have to go to the principal's office or they have to leave. And so they leave, but they tell you that they're coming back. 
They're coming back right away. They just have to go down the hall for a minute. And they leave their briefcase and they leave their notes and everything else. And for the most part, the class behaves pretty well because the teacher's coming back. But if that substitute teacher leaves 10 minutes early and they take their notes and they take their briefcase and they walk out the door and you know they're not coming back, how does the class behave? Yeah. You see, so I kind of think that on purpose, God said, I'm not coming back, I'm coming back, but I'm not telling you when. And you need to be prepared for me to return at any time so that the class behaves. That's what God wants. God wants Christians to behave living rightly, to use the knowledge of the day of the Lord as a warning to our neighbors and to our friends. But he also wants the uncertainty to be there present. So that we can't say, oh, I know he's not coming back, or I know the day that he's coming back, and so I can wait till the day before, before I do anything. God is patient. He has a purpose with what he's revealed. And Peter has emphasized that purpose, that all should repent and face their last day, or the last day, with the certain hope of seeing Jesus as their Savior and not as their judge. That's what the last days are for. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that from cover to cover, you talk about the day of your return. We know that Jesus is coming back imminently, personally, bodily, physically, to this physical world to judge us and to reward us. Father, we also know that you, the world as you have it now, as it is now, is not the way you intended it. It is far from perfect. It's fallen in curse. It's fallen in sin. And that although that destruction is terrible, you intend to remake it. And so, Lord, we do look forward to the day of the Lord as Christians, the terrible day of the Lord, in awe and anticipation. And, Father, the terribleness of that day should do nothing but inspire us to warn our friends and our co-workers that they can be prepared as we are, that they not be asleep, but they be awake and sober. And, Father, that they will rejoice at your coming and not wail, and they'll receive reward and not judgment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.